You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. On June 22, 1983, 15-year-old Vatican resident Emanuela Orlandi went missing and was never seen again. Her disappearance has been linked to the Pope, to Turkish insurrectionists, Italian mobsters, and even a potential satanic orgy ring. On this podcast, we'll explore all of the seedy and suspicious characters wrapped up in her disappearance and try to find some explanation in the chaos. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore all things weird and bizarre in the natural world and the world past. I'm your host for this episode, All That's Interesting's assistant editor, Leah Silverman, and I will be joined today by one of our foremost staff writers, Marco Margaritoff. Each episode will take a deep dive into a topic we haven't been able to stop thinking about. We'll first name the major players in Act 1 of this mind-bending mystery. So obviously there's Emanuela, who is 15 years old, uh, the fourth of five children. She loved music and played both the piano and the flute. Then there's Emanuela's father, Ercole Orlandi, who was a commesso or a Vatican clerk. Then you'll need to know about three of Emanuela's siblings for this first part of the story. Her younger sister, Maria Cristina, her older sister, Federica, and her older brother, Pietro. You'll also hear about some of Emanuela's friends, Maria Grazia and Raffaella Manzi. On June 22, 1983, the last day anyone ever saw her, Emanuela's brother, Pietro, refuses to give her a ride to her flute and chorus lesson on his motorcycle. She's late, so this causes a row between the two. She takes the bus from the Vatican to St. Apollinare in Rome, which today takes about 29 minutes. When she gets there, she's approached by a man claiming he works for Avon Cosmetics. He offers her a job doing promo at a fashion show at Sorel Fontana Fashion House in a few days. At that time, Avon only employed women. Manuela says she has to ask her family and goes to her lesson. She leaves around 7 p.m., with some saying she left early and seemed distracted, while others claim everything was normal. After her appointment, she calls home and tells her sister Federica about the man she met earlier. So according to a journalist who wrote about this case, Orlandi actually left class early because she was excited about the offer and wanted to get permission from her family. Yeah, and a, a lot of it is conjecture. He has quotes in there like, maybe the man tells her not to talk about it with her friends so they won't also ask for work. Maybe he makes other excuses. But likely she's excited about the offer because she would be making quite a bit of money for a little amount of work. Right, especially for a teenager. So she tells her sister about this, and Federica says to tell their parents about it before making a decision. And after this call, there are two differing accounts of what happened. The first one, Orlandi meets with school friends Maria Grazia and Rafaela Monsi and talks to them about the offer. The two friends leave around 7.30 p.m. while she stays behind to wait for a less crowded bus. In the second account, Emanuela meets with Rafaela only and tells her that she will meet the Avon man again to tell him that she does have to ask her parents first. Um, at 7.30 p.m., Rafaela takes the bus home, but she sees Emanuela talk to a red-haired woman, which some say was another student at the school. Nonetheless, 
Orlandi fails to meet her sister, Maria Cristina, as agreed upon at the Tribunale della Casazione, which is across the river from the music school. Maria Cristina thus gets home alone, uh, which worries Orlandi's parents. They call the school and start panicking a little bit. They call the police, and the police say they need to wait one day to file a report, which they do. After the report is filed, a police officer reports seeing a woman matching Emanuela's description. She was in front of the Senate asking him for directions to the Oratorio del Filippini, which is about half a mile away from the music school. He also says the girl was with a 35 to 40 year old bald man who drove a BMW Touring and that this man matched the description of a gangster named Enrico de Pettis. Traffic cop named Alfredo Zambuco says he saw Orlandi with the BMW guy too and that he was parked illegally and promised he'd move his car soon. The next day, the family files a police report and the Vatican is alerted to her disappearance. So the media gets a hold of the story on June 24th. Um, two Roman newspapers publish uh, information about her disappearance and ask the public for help. The headline, now famous, read, Who has seen Emanuela? The papal address of July 3rd, 1983. Con cui sono vicino alla famiglia Orlandi, la quale è nell'afflizione per la figlia Emanuela di 15 anni, che da mercoledì 22 giugno non ha fatto ritorno a casa. Act 2. With Emanuela disappeared, a whole new roster of characters enters the picture. Here are the most important ones. Emanuela wasn't the first girl to disappear around the Vatican that year. A young girl named Morella Gregori, who was also 15, disappeared on May 7, 1983, under weirdly similar circumstances. Two men named Pierluigi and Mario were the first to call the Orlandi family in the days following her disappearance. You should also know about Giulio Gangli. He was a friend of the family who also happened to be a secret agent for the Italian CIA. And Enrico de Pettis, one of the bosses of the Magliana gang. He was potentially the guy in the green BMW and strangely entombed in the Vatican Basilica when he died in 1990. This is strange because the Vatican Basilica is usually reserved for clergy and men of faith. It should also perhaps be noted that in 2011, former gang member Antonio Mancini, who worked with Enrico de Pettis, claimed that de Pettis' burial was actually a reward for his role in convincing other members of the gang to stop intimidating the Vatican. The Vatican Bank had borrowed money from a one Roberto Calvi and his bank Banco Ambrosiano. And who's Roberto Calvi? He's quote-unquote God's banker, general manager of Banco Ambrosiano. Calvi was murdered in London, presumably by the mob, and was suspected of being involved in the murder of Pope John Paul I, as dramatized in The Godfather III. What's more, he died in 1982, shortly before these kidnappings took off. Lastly, you should know about the Grey Wolves. They're a Turkish far-right ultra-nationalist gang known for assassinations and bombings, including the attempted assassination of Pope John Paul II, who was Pope at the time. Two days after Emanuela disappeared, June 25th, 1983, the Orlandis received their first phone calls with potential clues to her disappearance. A 16-year-old named Pierluigi calls. He says he and his girlfriend met two girls in Campo de Fiori, one of whom sold cosmetics, had a flute, and said her name was Barbarella, and some sources say she said her name was Barbara. Did anyone ever interview his so-called girlfriend? Um, so Pierluigi just called in and no one even knows who he is. He basically was an anonymous caller who told 
officials this story. He called again the next day and said the cosmetics were Avon products, confirming those earlier narratives. Um, he also said she had astigmatism, which is kind of an odd detail to include. And he said the girls that he met planned on playing at Barbarella's sister's wedding, which is interesting because Emanuela's sister, Natalina, was getting married that September. It kind of makes me think of when somebody's lying and they come up with a bunch of little details to try and justify their lie. Kind of a strange collection of facts you have there. And to call up a day later and be like, by the way, I remembered a very specific set of details as if someone had fed it to him. The day after that, Giulio Gangli, a friend of Orlandi's uncle, who also happened to be a secret agent at the SISDE, which is basically Italy's CIA, uh, managed to track down the green BMW. It was being repaired in a garage. He asked the mechanic who left the car there, who dropped it off, and he said a blonde woman dropped it off that the window was broken from the inside, which might be the first potential sign of foul play. Or a struggle, yeah. Right, if Orlandi was even in that car, because again, nobody really knows what happened to her after she disappeared. But Gangly managed to track the woman down who left the car in that garage. She was staying in a building frequented by the Magliana gang. And to Gangly's surprise, when he went back to the office, his boss told him to drop the investigation. On June 28, the following day, the Orlandis receive yet another call, this time from a 35-year-old named Mario, who says Pierluigi is a friend of his. So what 16-year-old boy is friends with a 35-year-old man? Right, very strange connections. Um, he says he owns a bar near Piazza del Orologio, and that he saw a man with two girls selling cosmetics. One of them said she was from Venice and called herself Barbarella. So clearly this narrative of a girl selling cosmetics, calling herself Barbarella, keeps coming up. Only by these first two callers, which claim to know each other. And they were never interviewed, they're just anonymous callers with first names only. Um, but Mario said that Emanuela left on her own volition, and that she wanted to run away from home. Which would negate the missing persons aspect, if that were true. It also calls to question why the police wouldn't think to investigate her family, even if that's just conjecture and he made that whole thing up. If you hear that a teenage girl was running away from home for any reason, wouldn't you want to investigate what was happening in her home life? Yeah, there's a lot of loose ends in this now nearly 40-year-old case that are just confusing and lead you down a rabbit hole that never seems to end. But during that call from Mario, he said he estimated the height of this Barbarella to be 4 foot 11, while a second voice on the phone was heard saying, no taller. Um, Emanuela was 5'3 when she disappeared, so some of these pieces seem to fit, but it's not really evidence of any kind. Um, we have two young men with very specific and similar stories right, Mario who seem and to be being led in some way. Perhaps. Right. So a few days go by, and on July 3rd, Pope John Paul II gets involved in the story publicly for the first time. He makes a public appeal to those responsible for her alleged kidnapping, saying, I'm close to the Orlandi family. And he goes on to speak about her at least seven more times in the following months. But at this point, it's kind of odd that this is already an official kidnapping because that hasn't really been confirmed by anyone. The people who called even, the, the only claims are that she left on her own volition. 
And besides that, there's really no sign of forceful kidnapping. So it's kind of strange. Right. So it's interesting, first of all, that the Pope would say something in the first place. How involved does the Vatican usually get in local affairs or police affairs like this? Is it not unusual that they say something if they hear something's happening in their local small community? Do they normally take a vested interest in police matters? And second of all, how did the Pope already come to the decision that she was kidnapped if, as you said, they both said she was with a man, but one of them said that she was leaving of her own volition? Yeah, that... Which does not suggest a kidnapping. The pleading to kidnappers is the strangest thing, and the Pope also says another weird thing later on, which we'll get to. I would say it's fairly unusual for the Pope to make public speeches about a missing girl, but... Especially because we know that a young girl went missing 40 days exactly before Emanuela did, and I didn't see anything about the Pope making a plea to her disappearance in public. Yeah, I suppose the only difference is that Orlandi's father worked there and managed the Pope's audiences, but it's really not clear if they were close at all, if you can be close to the Pope as a clerk. Um, I mean, if you're managing his audiences, you're keeping track of who's coming in and out of his office, and if he's hanging out with some seedy characters, you would be privy to that, at least during office hours, you know what I mean? So he could potentially, her father, Emmanuel's father, could potentially have a whole stock of information of his own. But we don't seem to have anything from him. Yeah, very little. On the record. It gets even weirder, though, because two days after that, on July 5th, a man dubbed L'Americano calls. And he's named as such due to his accent, which doesn't particularly sound American, but was probably just a casual descriptor that the Italian authorities described his non-Italian accent as. He called and asked for the Pope to release Mehmet Ali Akka, who was a Turkish gangster imprisoned two years earlier for trying to kill the Pope. Uh, L'Americano asks for his release by July 20th, so two weeks and a day after he called. And he said Pierluigi and Mario were both part of his crew. So he called the Vatican press office first and then the Orlandi family. Which is also strange because if Pierre Luigi and Mario were part of a group that had their own agenda, why would they call with any information to the police to prove that they knew yeah, who so she was and that they had to be taken seriously because they knew who she was? It, it gets more and more confusing. The, the problem, as far as I understand, is as soon as the two newspapers published news of this disappearance, Both the police and uh, the family received hundreds of calls, some with just cryptic clues, some very prankish, um, you know, making the investigation harder than it already is um, because you're just following all sorts of leads, most of which, all of which have never led anywhere. But yeah, during the family call, he played a recording he claimed was of Emanuela. Um, So three days later, on July 8th, a man with a Middle Eastern accent calls Laura Casagrande, um, the friend that some believe Emanuela was seen talking to the night she disappeared after her class. Laura was a music school peer of hers and a friend of hers. And uh, the man who called asked for a direct line to Cardinal Casaroli, who was the Vatican's Secretary of State. Why would Laura Casagrande have a direct line to Cardinal Casaroli. Yeah, yet another strange blind spot where we ourselves can 
do some conjecture and say, oh, well, you know, the Vatican, maybe Laura's father knew this guy. And there's a bunch of rabbit holes that you can spend the weeks on. But, you know, this is all we know, according to Italian media and articles published in places like The New York Times and The Guardian in the last few decades. And from the books that we translated using Google from Italian into English. But so he asked for this direct line. The reason this guy was able to contact Laura was because Laura gave Emanuela her number the day Emanuela disappeared. So two days later, the Pope chimes in for the second time on July 10th and pleads for Emanuela's release once again. Newspaper Paesa Sera receives a call from L'Americano describing a text by Orlandi addressed to her parents, quote unquote which he says is waiting at the chapel at Leonardo da Vinci airport. So Orlandi's parents go to the airport, they go to the chapel, and they find a photocopy of their daughter's music school ID, and on that same sheet in their daughter's writing, a message that reads, for Ercole and Maria Orlandi, dear mom and dad, don't worry about me, I'm fine. Because when I'm sending a message to my parents, the first thing I want to do is also provide a copy of my identification so they believe that it's me. Yeah, and you use a middleman, you leave a message at the airport. It also would be very important for me to put it in a place totally out of the way for my parents. And in the chapel, no religious connotations at all, no weird symbology. Um, yeah, it's all very straightforward. <laughs> um, a week later, authorities find a tape where a girl audibly pleads for help, saying she feels ill. The tape also confirmed the request that Mehmet Ali Aka should be released and that Orlandi would be returned. And it also confirmed that a direct line to the cardinal was uh, requested. It's like a Coen Brothers movie where there's really only one thing happening, but everyone gets a little soundbite of it and then it like through a game of telephone turns into this big convoluted mess. Yeah. Orlandi. Like I feel like this Turkish group really isn't involved. They're just trying to capitalize off this small issue to get what they want for leverage. Yeah. Um, but it just convolutes what little is already known about the case in the first place. Orlandi is like the MacGuffin, which totally. no one is really interested in except her parents, of course. The voice on the tape was later found to be taken from a movie and not Orlandi's at all. The direct phone line to Cardinal Casseroli was established the day after that on July 18th. The next incident in this case happens on September 4th when a letter from L'Americano arrives. So the letter contains photocopies of sheet music for flute and this piece was apparently a song that Emanuela was studying at the time of her disappearance. Who receives this letter? I believe the family does, but... This poor family, they're being just tormented with, by yeah. what might be people taking advantage of the situation. Yeah, constant mail reminding them their daughter is gone. So in October, the next month, October 27th, L'Americano ceases all communication with the family or authorities. That's the last time he communicates with them. And in November, on November 20th, the Grey Wolves, the uh, criminal organization from Turkey, releases a press release claiming they had Emanuela, as well as the missing Grigori girl who disappeared a month before Emanuela. But this was later disavowed as an East German plot. But I mean, if they disavow that press release, why don't they disavow the testimonies of Pierluigi and Mario, who claimed to be, well, they didn't personally claim, but were claimed to be a part of that group. 
That's a great question, and who knows who Pierluigi and Mario even are. This is all extremely confounding stuff. Multiple parties, multiple claims, claims disavowed, letters sent, anonymous calls. This press release is later disavowed, and um, the Emanuela Orlandi case basically goes largely silent until the 2000s. L'Americano speaking with Manuela's uncle. In, in fact, uh, speaking in English, um, it gives, um, um, uh, how do you say, an identity that's more precise of um, my origins. Act 3. As time passed and only more questions arose, theories about Emanuela Orlandi's disappearance became somewhat unlimited by their possibility. Exacerbated by the passage of time and the absence of new information, only conspiracies could arise. Marco, do you have a favorite conspiracy or one that you think has more legitimacy than others? I do. Um, the first one we're going to talk about um, is the Magliana band kidnapping theory. Um, I like this one the most because it's the most down to earth. It basically centers on common issues of uh, conflict, just money and um, there's a bunch of theories that will come up, one of which centers around um, satanic sex orgies and stuff, and while those are entertaining and certainly very visceral and colorful, this makes the most sense to me. This theory basically revolves around the Magliana band, of which Enrico de Pettis was one of the bosses for. And they're just like your regular mob, right? They are an Italian mob, yes. Part of the mafia, I guess. I'm not sure how exactly that works. Um, but Pettis was the guy seen in the green BMW, according to one of the witnesses. So the theory is that this guy did kidnap Orlandi because the Magliana gang lent the Vatican Bank a large amount of money and they basically kidnapped Orlandi as an extortion tool to force the bank to pay them back. And there are se several corroborating pieces of evidence that support this theory. I guess this would also be a good time to point out that the bank scandal between the Vatican Bank and Roberto Calvi's Banco Abrogiano um, could be a podcast of its own. But either way, the fact that the Vatican was involved in such shady activities certainly puts the papacy in a precarious position. If these men are capable of this kind of corruption, perhaps anything else could be possible. Yeah, I like this theory because there are a few convincing bullet points that make this a lot more believable than some of the later ones. So the theory is that de Pettis was involved in kidnapping her to extort the Vatican to pay back the money that the Magliana gang lent them earlier. In 2005, an anonymous caller called an Italian TV show and told the police to check De Pettis' tomb for clues. He died in 1990. Um, he was gunned down, I believe. And remember that he's buried in Sant'Apolliano? Sant'Apollinare. Sant'Apollinare, which is typically a holy burial ground that's not reserved for the likes of Italy's underworld. Right. So I initially thought that this anonymous caller suggested they check that tomb because they might find a clue in there or they might find remains of Orlandi in there. But 
in context of these upcoming clues, it seems like the call itself was a tip. Basically, look at the tomb of this person, Enrico de Pettis. That might just mean he was involved. I, I can see why this is believable because... Wait, can I just interrupt real quick? Yes. This call came in 2005. He wasn't exhumed until 2011. I think it was, yeah, 11 or 12. So why did they wait so long? Well, I don't know. You got to ask the Vatican. That's what the Orlandi family, like Pietro Orlandi, was constantly complaining about as well, this lack of cooperation for years and years. Okay, so Enrico de Pettis' mistress, Sabrina Minardi, said that de Pettis once confessed to her that he was involved in the abduction of Orlandi and that she was killed as she was put into a bag and then thrown into a concrete mixer. Oddly enough, she also said that she saw one of these bags being thrown into a concrete mixer and that de Pettis confirmed to her that Orlandi was in that bag. So between a confession and the strange statement of possibly having been a witness to you know, depositing her body into a mixer, you know, why make that up? I guess we can get into motivations later, but... Um, she also said that Orlandi had been brought to an apartment in the center of Rome, and Rome's public prosecutor, Giancarlo Capaldo, and his team did actually discover an apartment above the grotto, which belonged to De Pettis's gang. And they found steel, likely from a chain, but they weren't able to test it for DNA. And they can't say for sure whether Manuela was held there, but they're pretty convinced it was a site where kidnapped victims were kept. Right. Um, and so in 2011, this De Pettis theory garnered more traction when former Magliana gang member Antonio Mancini claimed that Orlandi was kidnapped for ransom for this repayment. It was apparently in the sum of over 20 billion lira. Um, he said that De Pettis ended it because he really wanted to be buried, like you said, at this uh, holy burial ground at Saint Apollinare, which is usually not reserved for gangsters like De Pettis, but more for clergymen and men of faith in general. So between his mistress and this former gang member, and the sketch, the guy in the BMW, and just the fact that this is all based on money and just like relatable motivations, this kind of makes the most sense to me. There are one or two others that I could see being realistic, but I like this one the most. The second theory we have is pretty cut and dry, at least at first. It's that Orlandi ran away from home and she just wanted to leave her family, basically. This is corroborated by Pierluigi and Mario, the one 16-year-old and the other 35-year-old. Who were friends and apparently somehow tied to the Grey Wolves. Right. So 16-year-old Pierluigi, the first person to call after Orlandi vanished, said a girl matching her description, calling herself Barbarella, approached him and apparently she got a haircut because the description didn't match this Barbarella girl that he was interacting with. But she said she just ran away from home. She was now selling Avon products. And that was confirmed by Mario three days after that on June 28th. This is the guy who owned a bar located near both the Vatican and Orlandi's music school. He said a girl named Barbara said that she ran away from home. 
but she did want to come back for her sister's wedding in September, which, you know, Orlandi's sister was getting married in September, but this is kind of a strange theory that feels like a bunch of cobbled together. To me, it feels like they weren't directly involved in her disappearance, but they know somebody who either is or was privy to that information, and they were given that information to use as leverage to get Akka released from prison. It just seems that if you are part of a criminal organization that's responsible for kidnapping a 15-year-old, why even call and say, oh, I saw that girl, she, yeah. she wants to be gone. Why even risk because also that undoes everything if the point is that she wants to be gone then they have nothing to hold over the vatican if they have her right it's pretty confusing um which is why i feel like this was a case of wires being crossed between the gray wolves and somebody on the inside of what actually happened to emanuela who was in contact with them and was like hey you could use this to your advantage to leverage what you want from the Vatican. Yeah, and, and knowing that Orlandi's sister was getting married in September, that's probably not hard to find out. You know, that, that could ingratiate yourself as, as being credible, like, oh, they, 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 also they must have met her. They those little details in the beginning. They, they, uh, they sent, like, her music, and they had oh, right. her ID path, and they were saying these were all proof yeah. that they had her. Kind of like when... Uh, me thinks the lady doth protest too much type thing. Yeah, so between these two that we just covered, the first one still reigns supreme to me. The second one is just super muddled and I don't really understand what the plays here are. We can continue with the Akka conspiracy. Right, so this might be the most complex one. One month earlier, Mirella Grigori went missing. Right. Also 15. And then Akka admitted in 2006 that both Emanuela and Mirella Grigori were kidnapped by his organization, the Grey Wolves, to extort the government for his own release. Yeah, this is this expands the international aspects of these theories a lot more. So Akka said both girls were kidnapped for extortion purposes to get him released. He said both of them were taken to a royal palace in Liechtenstein. How they had access to said royal palace is beyond me. He, and Akka was released from prison in Istanbul after a 25-year sentence served in both Turkey and Italy. And after he was forgiven by the Pope, he tried to shoot. Yes. Um, so Akka was permanently released from prison in 2010. He was released prior to that, but authorities described it as a quote-unquote mistake, so he was re-imprisoned. How that works, I'm not sure. But um, that November in 2010, he was being interviewed on Turkish state TV channel Turkey TRT. He said it was the Vatican who attempted to kill the Pope, not him, and that Orlandi was being kept prisoner by the Vatican for him which I don't really understand. Like as a present? <laughs> There's also a KGB aspect to Akka's um, attempted papal assassination. And it ends with Akka saying that Orlandi was still alive and living right. somewhere in Central Europe as a nun in a Catholic monastery. Yeah, and he said that her family could see her anytime they wanted, but that Orlandi was not allowed to leave. 
I mean, this doesn't make sense to me because the family has been campaigning to find their daughter up until like this year even. So if they could see their daughter anytime they wanted, I'm sure they would have. Um, so another strange aspect to the Mehmet Akka theory is that um, he claims that the assassination on the Pope was ordered by the KGB. They would pay him three million Deutschmarks which at that time was, I don't know, over a million dollars. That would have been the worst deal in the history of trade deals, like, yeah, ever. that's a serious hit. Um, anyway, you know, he's screwed up anyway. The Pope didn't die, and he went to prison for over 20 years. Is that why they have the Pope-mobile? I mean, yeah, it's against, it's bulletproof. But, but Such an intimate thing, Pope in a bulletproof bubble. It's a cool little car. So what is our next theory? The Vataliks, which suggests that Orlandi was alive and well for a long time and was actually being kept alive by the Vatican in secret. Right. So the Vataliks most directly implicates the Vatican out of all of these, except perhaps the one coming up next. There were two instances of Vataliks, which is exactly what it sounds like. A bunch of documents were stolen from the Vatican and leaked to the public. Yes. And it had a lot to do with exposing corruption, blackmailing, homosexual clergy, you name it. The batch of leaks revolving around Orlandi, as far as I understand, were five pages long. It was one document. It was published in 2017 by journalist Emiliano Fittipaldi. Apparently, this document was written in March of 2014 by a cardinal. And the document suggests the Vatican was aware this entire time that Orlandi was not only alive, but where she was, but that they were also responsible for her disappearance and were paying for her expenses. Um, the Vatican called this, quote-unquote, false and ridiculous. And to his credit, even the journalist said, look, I don't know how legit or false this document is. He even called it a poisoned meatball. <laughs> because if it were false, it basically discredits this whole theory. But if it's true, it, uh, his direct quote is, if it is true, it opens up incredible chapters in a story that's still murky. So anyway, this- Just so you all know, poison meatball is not an expression. Right. So the theory here is that this document, which is called a summary of expenses sustained by Vatican City State for the activities related to citizen Emanuela Orlandi. It's an itemized receipt for everything right. the Vatican purchased for Orlandi. From the year of her disappearance to 1997. And in total, the expenses are around $300,000. And they're itemized as things like transfers, room and board in London and other places including medical expenses from a gynecologist and yeah. Vatican-funded efforts to find her. Right, so this theory, I mean, it, it seems like the theory suggests while the Vatican was publicly saying, yes, we'd love to help, we're doing everything we can, and maybe even funding some of these investigations, they knew where she was the whole time, and they were paying for her to be out of the country, it seems. Why they would do that is completely unclear. Why be involved in a kidnapping just to pay for a girl to live somewhere else? Maybe missing girls are just shipped around Europe and the Vatican is involved. Who knows? But Fittipaldi said instead of returning her to her family, they kept her in London. It's unclear why. 
And again, to his credit, he said it's wrong to leap to conclusions. Regarding these Vatilik documents about Orlandi, her brother Pietro said, it's hard for him to believe that his sister was alive and well in London and was being paid for, but she never managed to contact her family for decades at that point. He said, it's clear that she wasn't able to move freely. Should the document be real, it is very serious because it implicates the Vatican in a kidnapping. And he also said, you can't close a case when new documents emerge after 34 years that still have to be verified regarding the veracity of that document. What I also don't understand is if they were keeping her alive for that long, where is she now? The Orlandi family lawyer, Laura Scro, said two years ago in 2017 that she'd been trying to get the Vatican to help for months. She wanted to see all the Orlandi-related documents and to speak to the Secretary of State, Pietro Parolin. And she said, I've heard nothing. I haven't received one piece of paper, zero. The Vatileaks obviously revolve around far more cases than just Orlandi's. The investigative journalist Gianluigi Nuzzi, who published the original Vatileaks, said the people who provided these documents did it because they had enough of the lies. They did it at great risk, and if they are ever found out, they will likely disappear without a trace. I don't know, there's a lot here, just with Vatileaks in general. How true this five-page Orlandi thing is, is unclear. The good news is, as of this year, on April 10th, the Vatican decided to open an internal probe on Emanuela's case. An internal probe. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, investigating Which is results. the Vatican's favorite right. activity. Yeah. We'll be very thorough. We'll tell the truth. Don't worry. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very glib and dismissive to just criticize the Vatican continuously, but there seems to be so much secrecy and and lies and just misdirection that it's hard not to hard not to think that they know more than they've been telling people. Weirder still, when Pope Francis met the Orlandi family, he said to them, the truth is in the sky. <laughs> Which is weirdly ambiguous for a Pope who's been pretty frank and modern. Yeah. Don't look at me, look up. Our final theory here is probably the most controversial. The theory is basically that Orlandi was kidnapped to partake in secret Vatican sex orgies involving priests and uh, high-ranking officials. The theory was put forth by Father Gabriel Amort, who was appointed by Pope John Paul II as the Vatican's chief exorcist. Yeah, I think the one that I buy the least is the sex orgies. I am with the sex orgy narrative until you realize that the guy who puts it forward thinks Harry Potter is satanic and that yoga is satanic. He also thought the exorcist was based on a true story and very indicative of real life. I mean, him being an exorcist fan, that's a plus for me. But He is an exorcist. He's an exorcist, even better. It is definitely the most fun, though, an eyes wide shut situation. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not fun if it ends with the death of 15 year old girls, but no, but that's it's the, sexy. That's the problem with theories like that is that they are the most colorful and you want to read about them the most, at least for me sometimes. In 2012, he said Orlandi was kidnapped to be raped in secret Vatican sex rituals and then she was subsequently murdered and disposed of. 
His quote was, this was a crime with a sexual motive. Parties were organized with the Vatican gendarme acting as the recruiter of the girls. The network involved diplomatic personnel from a foreign embassy to the Holy See. I believe Emanuela ended up a victim of the circle. He also said all these international organized crime theories are nonsense. Okay, well, this guy's theory, this chief exorcist's theory, while it might sound somewhat plausible, again, he said yoga is satanic because it leads to Hinduism, is something I read. That was his, his reasoning. And yeah, Harry Potter is dangerous. So yeah, so out of all of these, we have Orlandi was kidnapped for secret Vatican sex orgies. Orlandi ran away from home. Orlandi was kidnapped and held for ransom by a Turkish insurgency. And lastly, the Vatican was involved and they paid all her bills and they just wanted her to live in London. I feel like part of, that could be a part of the sexual scandal. Like they basically were keeping her as a prostitute, a well-paid yeah. prostitute. Yeah. I, I don't know if she was well-paid. I feel like the truth is, I mean, obviously it's utterly nebulous, but between all of these some of these things just sound right. There's two options basically. Either she either she's dead, she was kidnapped, used, killed, or she's alive and she's still nowhere to be found. So she might have been kept and used all along. Sexual purposes kind of makes sense to me. That's like a steady income for these whoever is in charge of this. Why wouldn't she contact her family? Was she brainwashed? Did she want Threatened. to? It doesn't seem like she had a horrible life at home. You know, she was a 15-year-old teenager But again, that's a lessons. fault of whoever was responsible for in investigating her family. We don't know anything about her family. We can only assume that they want her back and they have no right. involvement in her disappearance. There's never been a single source that said the Orlandi home life is terrible. It, you know, it makes sense that her she wanted to flee. Her father had seedy dealings. I mean, the only real connection would be that her dad worked for the Pope and was responsible for everyone that came and went from the Pope's office. So he could have been privy to some information, and maybe that would have made his daughter a prime target if it had extortion purposes behind it. Yeah, that's the pro that's the both the problem and the allure of this whole Orlandi thing is that a lot of questions are unanswered and a lot of the people involved are dead like her father died in 2004 i believe so all you can do is go down these rabbit holes and eventually you get to a dead end because there's no more information yeah all you're left with is myth rummaging yeah through some of these theories some of which seem completely cartoonish it's unfortunate that the fate of this 15 year old girl has to be left to everyone's imagination it's also crazy that this has continued up until 2019. Like, we might get more information on this as time goes on. Again, I think the some combination of mob kidnapping and sexual trafficking makes sense to me the most. The Vatican, I mean, from what I understand about the Vatican and this whole Vatileaks angle, they probably are aware of a lot more than they've than they've let be known. What I don't understand is the Vatican has been the subject of conspiracies that are being brought to light, you know, 
sexual conspiracies, rape conspiracies, what happened with those nuns in France, how they were basically sex slaves. Yeah. All this information is coming out. The fact that something like this is still under wraps leads me to believe that it might be even bigger than anything we've heard thus far. Right. Or they would have been perhaps more willing to share what they know. Right. If it was just they've had a vocal family who lives in the Vatican, desperate for information, and they've still decided to withhold. So I can only imagine that it's much more tied to a lot of importance, people and entities than what maybe, we've seen rather than just a simple kidnapping. Yeah. Or um, they don't even know. Or they don't even know. Yeah. Um, okay, well, those are our theories. We do have a smaller article about Orlandi on our website, allthatsinteresting.com, and we have some hilarious, sad, great, intelligent comments on that article, and we encourage you to comment as well. We're going to read some of those now. First comment by Makasha Jackson is, quote, Is the Catholic Church above the law? They never seem to be charged or investigated for anything. The second one is by Jordan McFarlane. Makasha Jackson, the Vatican is technically its own country with no extradition treaties. They do their own investigations and are not beholden to any outside authority. All right, so I think those two comments are some of the best we're going to read today because it... It's downhill from here. It points toward the Vatican being its own state and having its own authority and, um, you know, affecting investigations like this for better or worse. Um, it does go downhill from here. You're right. Um, the third comment is by Leroy Kelly. Listen up, all of you. This has Epstein and Trump written all over it. Just watch. By the way, why do you think this is getting coverage right now? Asking for a child rape victim. Pretty sure it's getting coverage right now because of the bones. Right, because there was a discovery and another hint that her remains might be found. Uh, Brian Sharples, is this why the Christian anti-abortion crowd has been lobbying more virgin fodder for the Benjamins? I'm not even sure what that means. That means um, he's a conspiracy. Yes, please translate. He believes that people are anti-abortion because those who are into satanic sex orgies with underage children need more children to abuse. Or is he saying... So don't, don't kill our victims, he means. Oh, I see keep populating our orgies. I, I hate that I could decipher that. Um, Ashley Jackson said, I always wondered why it was the Jews that got hit so bad and not this shit religion. It's because Hitler was a shit-eating pedophile with mummy issues who was also down with the rich and powerful. Thank you, Ashley Jackson. Salida Mordo Rosado. Hitler was a good Catholic. However, the history of the church goes back a thousand or more years, corrupt from the start in every criminal way. Ashley Jackson actually replied to that and said, you just wrote Hitler was a good Catholic. So basically Hitler was a good genocidal shit-eating nonce in your mind. And then Salida said, yes, I should have put in quotes. I should have put good in quotes. Oh, I see. Anyway, those are some of our best, worst, most hilarious, most depressing comments. If you want to leave a comment, go to allthatsinteresting.com and find our article on Emanuela Orlandi. And if you have any of your own theories or you know something that we don't know, please feel free to comment on the Orlandi article or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. And if you send us something particularly salacious, we'll probably read it on our next podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at instagram.com slash realhistoryuncovered and facebook.com slash historyuncovered. And if there's a story that you'd like to hear us do, 
hit us up. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.